Gracious God, we ask that you would speak to us today, that you would encourage us and that you would challenge us and that you would call us to be better disciples, uh, that we might recognize how we could live in your kingdom better even today. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Uh, there is a, a familiar story that's told in all sorts of various different ways, but the basics of the story go something like this. There's an old man, and he's teaching his grandson about life, and he tells the boy that there's a, a fight that's currently going on inside of me. Uh, it's a terrible fight between two different wolves. One of the wolves is, is my evil, anger and envy. Sorrow and regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, uh, guilt, resentment, inferiority, superiority, pride, and ego. The other wolf is the good, joy and peace, love and hope, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, truth, compassion, and faith. And these two wolves are constantly fighting inside of me. These two wolves are constantly fighting inside of you. These two wolves are constantly fighting inside of every person. The grandson thought about it for a minute and then asked his grandfather, well, which wolf will win? And the old man replies, the one you feed. Because, of course, despite all our different desires and experiences and temperaments, there's still a choice, not just in the moment of the big decisions, but also in all of those tiny moments that lead up to those decisions, that set the, the stage for those decisions, that, that create our position for those decisions, that make those decisions easier or harder. The reality is that we feed one wolf or the other. At a really basic level, uh, you'll notice, I notice, that when I'm tired or hungry or distracted, so is that good wolf, to, to continue the analogy. Whereas there are other times and positions and situations I can put myself in so that the right decision isn't quite so hard. But, but here's what I find interesting about this. This idea of feeding one side of you or another, feeding this issue or that issue inside of you, is sometimes in our, in our bodies, if you feed one piece, it, it gets full. And then there are other places in our lives where if you feed it, it doesn't get full, it gets worse. Sometimes when you feed a certain part of your body, it gets satiated. There are other times that you inflame whatever it is that was there. So, so here's what I mean. When your stomach is hungry, obviously you feed it, and afterwards you don't feel hungry anymore. So in that case, feeding that feeling of hunger satisfies the feeling of hunger. That's kind of obvious. It's almost lunchtime. Uh, but, but notice that's true of your stomach. That's not always true of your heart. Because if I feel angry, and then I feed that anger, dwell on that anger, savor that anger, it doesn't decrease, it increases. And we've all experienced this in, in various different ways. You're stumbling your way through the, uh, the interwebs, FaceTalk or InstaTwit, and you stumble upon some mistaken person's misinformed view of something that you know something about. And so in order to help them, 
See the error of their ways, you post something back, an innocent reply, a helpful reply to this poor, mistaken, naive person, so they see the errors of their way. And you wait for a response, and they happen to be online, and soon you are all in on this little discussion, and you're yelling at your screen in frustration. Here's my question. In this hypothetical situation, when you were done, did you find that your anger had dissipated? You fed your anger, but it didn't dissipate. It got inflamed, which is weird because that's not what happens with your stomach all the time. Notice where else that works. It works with fear. You're afraid of something, so you look into it more, you dwell on it more, you imagine it more, and you get more afraid. As a kid, think of that dark hallway or that upstairs that's always dark. Uh, Or think about that time you had a little tummy ache and then you asked Google for a helpful diagnosis to calm your fear. That's why you went there. And after coming up out of that very, very scary rabbit hole and learning all that you learned, you thought, wow, I'm not afraid anymore. Said no one ever. And while you're hyperventilating into a bag and coming back to reality, you think, or it could be just something I ate. But that's the challenge, isn't it? There are so many things in our lives that if you feed them, They don't get relief, they get aggravated. And then you have to feed them more, and then they get worse, and then you have to feed them more, and they just get worse. Jealousy is like that. Greed is like that. Our, Our need for constant entertainment is like that. Lust can be like that. Depression can be like that. There's so many others. But therefore, again, we come back to this question, what are you feeding in your life? And is it working? Is it, are you being satiated or are these things being inflamed? At that point, it's probably worth asking, what else are you feeding? Where do you spend your times? Where do you put your thoughts? Where does your energy go? What are you focused upon? What do you imagine? What do we think about and what do we focus on and and what is that feeding inside of us and what's happening when we feed it? While we think about all of that, let me remind you where we are because we are in a series studying Jesus' longest teaching called the Sermon on the Mount and in it Jesus seems to be painting a picture of how Christians are supposed to be in the world, how we're supposed to be different, how we're supposed to be distinct from the world. And in many ways, this is what he's laying out in this sermon. Alas, even knowing this, we still spend so much of our time and so much of our effort trying to be just like everyone else, actually trying to be a little bit better than everyone else. But Jesus gives us a different set of values, a different set of priorities, a different way to live. He gives us the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. Of course, if you could live that way, then you would stand out a little bit. You would make an impact if you could live out those Beatitudes well, which is why he then goes on to say what we talked about last week, that you are the salt in the world, in a world that's bland and deteriorating. You are the light of the world in a world that sometimes feels dark. We we should have that kind of an effect because how we are living differently. We live 
like He lives. We become more like Him. That's discipleship. That's what it means to live in the kingdom of God here and now. So with all of that as kind of the background, back, background uh, we move on to Matthew chapter 5. So if you would, I would inter- invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. <clears throat> Jesus has just finished with the Beatitudes. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And then we get to verse 17. <clears throat> do, not think about, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Amen. Okay, see you next week. Um, Jiminy, this is why we don't preach in order of passages, because you get ones like today. Uh, You thought the Beatitudes were tough. Uh, He just keeps going. Um, But let's get back to the beginning, and then we'll work our way through this. Jesus starts this section in kind of a strange way. He starts by saying, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, which sort of implies that something that he just said leads us to believe that maybe he is doing something that could be interpreted that way. So it must be that he was worried that people would mistake these beatitudes for kind of a new law. You don't need to do the laws anymore. You don't need to listen to the prophets anymore because I have these these beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. (laughs) That's what it means. And yet what he was really doing was pushing us deeper into the law. He's supposed to be pointing us back 
towards God. Because, of course, Jesus wasn't coming to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, which may even make it harder than it was before. Because, of course, all of this is supposed to be pointing us towards and preparing us for His coming kingdom. But, of course, we hear something about laws and we start to look for loopholes, don't we? We we hear about rules and we want to know about the exceptions, the exemptions. Never mind that what it's really supposed to be doing is changing us on the insides, not just helping us look better from the outside. But that's the mistake we make. We talked about this a whole bunch in our series a couple summers ago on the Ten Commandments uh, because the way that we understand rules is that something has to be explicitly forbidden, and if it's not, then it's allowed possibly even encouraged, which is why all of our laws have to be completely enumerated. You have to list out all the exact pieces, otherwise I can do whatever I want that isn't listed. But the way the Bible thinks about laws is different. Laws are more paradigmatic. Don't do this kind of thing in that way. And if you're not doing this, you probably aren't doing that or this other thing or this third thing so that we all can become this kind of people. So the question of the Bible isn't, what's the bare minimum? What can I get away with? The question is, how can I live this out better? How do I allow this to reshape me? Who is this calling us to be and to become? And in all of this, Jesus is calling us to to more, not less, as He works to prepare us for His kingdom. But notice, that's not how we see this. I wonder if we, if we just get most of the Bible 180 degrees backwards. What if the laws are less about minimum entrance requirements and more about an invitation to a bigger and better kind of life? In other words, what if the kingdom life that Jesus is ushering us into isn't about who is in and who is out, but instead, what if Jesus is trying to show us the fullness of this kind of life? Because, of course, if you're, if you're trapped in sin or caught up in something more subtle like greed or jealousy or fear or anger or lust, then we won't be living the full kingdom life that we've been called to live. If you're caught up in addiction, you're not living the full kingdom life that Jesus wants for you, which is why then Jesus starts cutting with surgical precision right in as he talks about anger and then lust and then this kind of aside on divorce. So let's go through those. We start with anger. You have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. I don't know about you, but that seems a little over to the top to me. Uh, I mean, we can all get on board with the, uh, the don't murder rule. That's a good rule but don't get angry? Is that even possible? Should it be possible? Plus, hang on, didn't Jesus get angry a couple of times, some notable times? And are we even allowed to say that feelings can be wrong? Wouldn't not feeling be worse to be apathetic or indifferent when someone is hurting? Wouldn't it be worse to not care? And the answer is yes. Yes, it's okay to feel angry, but what happens next? Or maybe more helpfully to kind of go back to where we started, when you feel angry, 
do you feed that anger? Do you stoke those embers? Do you fan those flames? Do we allow our feelings of anger to become rage or hate or criticism or cynicism or contempt? Resentment. Because this seems to be what Jesus is getting at here. It's not that we shouldn't feel angry at times, it's that we shouldn't feed our anger. What's more, I think for some of us, we've been feeding our anger for so long that it just sort of is always smoldering there, always ready. So much so that there are actually times that I think we, we really are spending a lot of energy just trying to keep a lid on it, trying to keep our anger in check. And we feel that pressure, and we're dealing with so much hurt, and we feel so powerless, and, and there's so much anger there, but we just manage to keep the lid on it until something happens, until someone does something, and then boom! Oh, it gets unleashed. But where does it come from? I mean, obviously, it's that other person's fault. I mean, that's where anger comes from. If they didn't do the thing that they did, I wouldn't feel angry. Obviously, the, the place that anger came from is that, that person or that thing that set off the explosion. But again, what was feeding that anger even before that happened? And I think they're all the, the normal culprits here. Sometimes it's our feelings of helplessness, that life is out of control, and in trying to control it, it just kind of feeds into anger there. Sometimes it's self-righteousness or self-hatred for that matter, or both at the same time that feeds our anger. Sometimes it's feelings of hurt or shame or worthlessness or guilt or inadequacy. I wonder how often is our anger simply a cover for those things? I wonder if there are ever times when we're feeling angry, we can see some of those things just below the surface. Sure, sure, I'm really angry at them, but some of this may be some self-righteousness on my part. I'm really angry that they did that because there are times I do that too, and I don't want to feel guilty myself, so I'd rather put it on them. What if it's not always the other person making us angry? What if it's us? Might we sometimes blame others for something we don't want to face ourselves? You see, so often the trigger of ang anger seems to be that other person, but what really feeds my anger are my shortcomings my inability to recognize them or process them. And since I'm not going to be angry at myself, I'm going to find someone else to be angry with. And Jesus says, settle matters quickly. Leave your offering. Be reconciled. And all of this really points us right back toward the Beatitudes. But we'll get there. First, let's move on. Because Jesus then turns right to the issue of lust. And that can seem like a really strange topic change. Like he's just kind of grabbing different 
pieces out there, and yet I can't help but wonder if some of those same feelings of insufficiency or inadequacy or lack of control fuel not just anger, but, but lust. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, at first glance, Jesus seems to be taking this to a whole different level. That said, I'll say that this NIV version actually is a really, really good translation of this because Jesus isn't saying whoever looks is lusting. He says whoever is look, who looks in order to lust. I love what one commentator said, it's not the first look that's the problem, it's the second look. Because after the initial presenting feeling, which isn't normally sin, it's then how we feed it. Going back again, allowing it to linger, savoring the image or the thoughts or the feelings. And let's acknowledge we, we do this in different ways. For some, this is a struggle with the eyes. For others, this is a struggle with the imagination or the heart. Again, one commentator pointed it out well. Sometimes we objectify the person. Sometimes we objectify the persona. And we do this through the things we see, the movies we watch, the stories we read, the fantasies we return to. But they all amount to the same thing, trying to find satisfaction in something less than what's real, trying to fill something that's missing or hurting or deficient. And in all of this, Jesus' solution is simple, if not also brutal. Just start removing body parts. Uh, a few people in history have taken Him quite literally. That being said, there is an urgency and importance to what he's saying, but there also may be a little bit of a hyperbole here. And yet, to make the larger point, treat this like it's that important. In other words, maybe what he's saying here is if your eye causes you to sin, stop looking. If your hand causes you to sin, stop doing whatever it is you're doing or going to whatever place you're going. Behave differently, as if your life depends on it, because kingdom life does, which actually points us back to the Beatitudes, but we'll get there. Because then Jesus goes on to talk, He kind of pivots and has this little aside on divorce, and, and this is really a much larger discussion even within the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew comes back to all of this in a much more detail later in the book. What's more, Jesus is also entering into a huge and hotly debated issue of the day. This was a big hot-button issue between two very different sides of rabbinic schools. The, they had trouble trying to figure out what Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1 was saying. It says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from her home, and it goes on. Uh, the more liberal Rabbi Hillel, who Jesus sometimes sides with, stresses that something word meaning any indecency, bad housekeeping, bad cooking, whatever, you could get a divorce. Whereas the more conservative Rabbi Shammai stressed the word indecency, meaning marital unfaithfulness being the only reason for divorce. This was a huge debate back then. And so Jesus is entering into this discussion and siding really with Shammai. 
and saying it should be harder than that to get a divorce, not easier. Uh, as we also recognize that all this man-woman talk, women didn't actually get any, much of any grounds for divorce back then, so that's why it's so kind of one way in this passage. But in all of this, Jesus seems to be wanting to make it harder because marriage is that important, which again, should drive us back to the Beatitudes. But we'll get there. Because first we need to back up. Obviously, in thinking about these different topics, there is a good chance that Jesus has stepped on a couple of your toes or stomped on a couple of our toes. But what do we do with things like this? How do we think about them? And this is where I think we have to remember to back and go back to where Jesus started. Because I don't know about you, but as I think about these, it drives me back to those Beatitudes, back toward my need for Jesus in the first place. Because it turns out I'm not very good at these things. And, and this is, we're still at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It gets harder. But I think this whole sermon drives us back to those Beatitudes, especially as I remember that underneath anger and lust is so often fear or hurt or inadequacy or guilt or shame. For all of those, what I really need is not what happens, but I need to hear Jesus reminding me that in His kingdom, it's the poor in spirit or the merciful or those who hunger and thirst after righteousness that are blessed. That that's where blessing is found. That's where satisfaction is given. With that, I, again, going back to those Beatitudes, I mourn for the ways that I fall short. I'm made meek as I recognize my mistakes. I recognize that I need Jesus to help me be more pure in heart. In all of this, I'm driven back toward Jesus. Maybe it's as we feed these Beatitudes, as Jesus changes these things inside of us, that we find wholeness that we find fulfillment, that we enter into that kingdom kind of life even now. Maybe that's what Jesus is doing. He's pointing us back toward those Beatitudes, and in that, He's pointing us back toward God. Maybe that's what it looks like to be disciples. Let's pray. Lord God, these are hard topics. These are things that we struggle with. These are things we don't even struggle with anymore. And yet you know our hearts better than we do. And so we ask that you would continue to do your refining work inside of us. That you would be changing our hearts, changing our minds, and helping us have a better view of you and who we are in light of that. Lord, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you went to a cross for us. We thank you that you forgive us. 
But we thank you also that you're not done with us, that you love us so much that you want us to be better, that you want us to be more like you. So, Lord God, we pray that you would help us. And we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.